Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Hello, welcome to the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section's Law in the Family podcast. Our guest today is Christina DiMatteo. Christina has worked for other law firms in the past, but she has also opened her own firm, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Christina is a family law attorney out of Bluebell, Pennsylvania. Christina, thank you for joining us. Before we get started here, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So as you mentioned, I'm a family law attorney in Bluebell. I've been practicing law for over over 20 years at this point. And I had a a career trajectory where I started with a large firm. And I, I always say I've gotten progressively smaller in terms of firm size as time has gone on. So I started my practice or started practicing law with a large Philadelphia based family law firm with something like 300 attorneys. And I was there for just about 10 years. And at that point, I made the decision to transfer along with some other members of my practice group to a mid-sized firm in Philadelphia, again, probably more in the lines of like 60 to 70 attorneys at the time. Um, We started a family law practice group in that firm. I was there for a number of years and then moved to a smaller boutique family law firm in Bluebell. After that move, I finally moved into opening my own firm. I've practiced all types of family law, as I think most of us on this podcast have custody, support, divorce, PFAs, every family law related issue you can think of. Excellent. So let, let's get right in, into it. So you've worked at a number of different size firms. What did, for you individually, um, and maybe even what you've seen for other individuals, you know, why and, and how did you decide? So I, I, actually that process, I, I am interested in that process of how how did you decide to, you know, work with other attorneys where I would imagine a lot of the back end operations are are being taken care of by someone other than yourself and you decide to take charge and, and do it yourself? How, how did you decide that? Sure. So for me, that decision was a long time coming. I mean, it probably took me about 10 years to go from thinking about opening a firm to actually opening a firm. It was it was like the drop that keeps hitting you on the head and the drop gets bigger and louder until it finally is is like hitting you over the head with a brick. And you're like, okay, this is this is clearly what I'm meant to do because this theme keeps coming up. I had a number of people approach me and say, you know, have you ever thought about this? You could do this. Um, I spoke to different people over the years about how they had made their decisions. For me, it really came down to the fact that I noticed that every time that I made those moves progressively from a large firm to a smaller firm, I noticed that I was able to grow my book of business pretty significantly. I've always kind of used the analogy of a, of a goldfish bowl, that the goldfish grows to the size of the bowl. And there were definitely times where I felt like I was stuck, even though it was a large firm, I was stuck in a bowl that wasn't letting me expand my practice. And it made sense for me to continue to make moves to where I could grow my own book of business. And then it got to the point where I started to think that I really would like to not only have the freedom to operate my practice in the way that I wanted to do and in the way that was best for me, also to choose the type of clients that I wanted to take on and have the ability to direct the trajectory of the firm. In that decision-making process, again, this is a family law podcast. Did you have the types of responsibilities and at least know that some of the back-end operations things you'd be doing on your own? Well, not initially. 
Not a, not with the large firms, no. I think um, one big, huge wake-up call for me was that I was an associate at Wolf Block, which was a large Philadelphia-based family law firm, right? Wolf Block no longer exists. Wolf Block closed about a year after I left the firm. And I always sort of, as a young associate, felt like by joining a large firm that I was in this very safe, protected firm that, you know, there's no way that a firm like that can go down. And then shockingly, that large ship of a large firm turned out to be sort of like the Titanic. The unsinkable ship ended up at the bottom of the ocean. So it made sense for me to learn more about the business of law. That was my wake-up call. You need to learn about the business of law. You need to understand what's going on in the back rooms, how are profits being made, how your book of business is affecting the firm, and start to have more autonomy. And along those lines, did you start to look into that during some of your other uh, times at, at, as, as you, at smaller firms, were you starting to proactively take notice of those of those issues? I started to observe everything that I could about the practice and business of law and start to think about how would I do this on my own? How do other firms do this? Why are decisions being made the way that they are in this firm? And what are other firms doing that might work for me better if I had my own family law firm? One thing I want to jump backwards to, if you, if you wouldn't mind, you said, I don't think you said really crunch the numbers. You might have said that. But again, you're thinking about a leap. Just what kind of numbers are you crunching, so to speak, when well, saying, a, look, okay, could I make this work? Yeah, that's a huge part of the process, Anthony. I mean, I think that I, I've spoken to a lot of people over the years about opening firms, both when I was a person who was looking to open a firm. And now that I have a firm, I get approached by a lot of individuals who are interested in opening a firm. And my questions when I was in the process and their questions now focused very heavily on what does the budget look like? Everybody needs to know what they're going to be able to take home at the end of the day. And there's an, there's some anxiety and trepidation about that because you don't know exactly what you're going to bring in and what are things going to cost. And so you start by looking at the big expenses, right? What are the two biggest expenses? Your number one biggest expense is going to be your physical. Actually, your number one biggest expense is going to be your employees if you have staff. That's your number one biggest expense. Do you want to have staff? Are you going to have other attorneys that are employed by you? And then your second big, biggest expense is likely your rental expense. Do you need a physical office space? And if so, what is that going to cost? A lot of the advice that I was given early on was to keep your overhead as low as you can. Now, you have to decide what that means for you. For some people, that might, might mean don't have a physical space, don't have any employees. That would certainly keep your overhead low. It would not have been the right fit for me with the type of infrastructure that my clients were used to and the size of my client base. In that process, and, and perhaps you've been on your own for how many years now? On my own since 2018. Okay. So at that time, and you know, things like virtual assistance, uh, share space and things like that weren't quite as prevalent as they've become. I, I guess at that point they were the WeWork models and things like that were starting to really grow in popularity. But did you take into consideration some of those, you know, we'll just call them alternative options for physical office space or staffing? I did at different times over the years. I've looked at different options. Even before we work, they had some of those centers that sort of have the hotel space. And I, I know of other attorneys who have opened firms using that um, hotel type space on an as needed basis as their client based center of operations where they meet with clients and maybe take depositions and things like that. I at that point thought that I needed a 100 percent devoted physical space. So it made sense for me to go into an office space. And what I did to control overhead was that I was fortunate enough to find attorneys that in a pre-existing firm that had open space to share. Um, they sort of have a double suite and half of the suite was was pretty much open. And I was able to move into that, that half of the suite and share with them 
um, as opposed to taking on a new lease of my own. And you said about employees, your first employee, how, how'd you get your first employee? Uh, my first employee came with me from my prior firm. That, that's a para, She's a paralegal and she followed me from my prior firm to the current firm. And then I, at some point thereafter, I started the process of looking for an attorney to work with me. And that was a, um, a hire from the outside. So how critical was it that, I mean, you had done this. So I'm just trying to count backwards here. So you opened your firm, you know, you've have over 20 years experience and you opened your firm in 2018. So you were in, in excess of 15 years of experience when you opened your firm. Correct. Thoughts on thoughts. Yeah. yeah, Almost 20 at that time. Thoughts on that younger or older, or I I almost think that's a sweet spot. I mean, because I'm saying that for myself, at least I was in, in a similar situation there. Do you think you could have done it five years out of practice? I don't know if I could have done it five years out of practice. Do I think I could have done it earlier? I think the answer to that question is yes. But and that's something that I think anybody who's considering opening a firm one of the things you need to consider is, do you have the right level of experience for your own comfort level and for your clients to be able to do this? I don't know that I needed to wait quite as long as I did, but I think five years probably wouldn't have been enough time for me to have gained the experience to manage all of the challenges of practice and the challenges of client management. I mean, the the reality is that trust from clients and confidence from clients is extremely important in our line of business, as you both know. And so you need to have a certain level of experience to gain that trust, keep that trust, and be able to build that trust with new clients. So probably somewhere between 10 to 15 years minimally, I would say would have been what I would have been comfortable with from a practice experience side of things. All right. So substantively, you know, that that type of experience at your prior firms, did you get a lot of experience, you know, with seeing how the firm worked? Were you involved in those? You know, were you rolling up your sleeves and, and getting involved in the day to day operate, you know, HR and, you know, back end management? Or is that something you effectively taught yourself? No, there were some opportunities to do that. So in the more mid-sized firms, there were opportunities to participate in some um, sort of firm committees, things like the website committee. So you had some overview of what the decision-making process was like, but it certainly isn't the same as being in a small firm. And when I moved into a smaller boutique firm, that was probably when I really had a much better opportunity to observe and discuss with firm management decisions, such as things like document management systems, IT decisions, staffing decisions, office space decisions, advertising and website decisions. Those were all things that I was then able to become actively involved with in a smaller firm on a a hands-on basis where maybe you couldn't do those things as much in a large firm. And even if you could do them in a large firm, they're not necessarily focused on your area of practice. So like if you're designing a website, you're designing a website for a large firm, which is very different than designing a website for your practice and your practice group. I I mean, I got to ask a question. So no matter how much research you do before opening a firm, right, and and you spend, you know, countless hours a day, you know, preparing to open a firm, what percentage of knowledge, I'm just curious, did you actually know when you opened your doors as to what you know now? You know, I think where where the steep learning curve came in was in the months leading up to the opening of the firm, which was the setting up of all the business and infrastructure for the firm, getting all of that. My goal was when when we opened on day one was to be ready to go, which basically made setting up the firm 
like a second job in the in the months leading up. You know, you're you're spending your evenings and weekends trying to get the website content ready to go and trying to make sure that your phones are going to work on the morning of and that you're, you know, that you have all your forms for everything you might need to file and your retainer agreements and your insurance is all in place. And during that process is where I really felt like the rubber hit the road in terms of learning the process, making decisions. All of a sudden you're reviewing, you know, insurance policies, both malpractice and business insurance policies, and trying to figure out if this is the the right amount of coverage. You're dealing with your internet and phone provider, which I will say was one of the surprisingly bigger challenges that I had because they're just not that easy to deal with. You're setting up your bookkeeping and learning about accounting in a way, a hands-on way that maybe you never had to quite understand it before. So that was really where that learning curve hit. And it was, um, it was steep. I would call it steep, but fairly quick. It was a few months. And then once we opened the doors and things started running and we got through the first month of sending bills and collecting and moving money around, things really started to just click. So the question for you, I mean, I, I have my own experience. Your thoughts on out of the gate, having the right IT and infrastructure in place or doing it on a shoestring and not having those in place out of the gate. I mean, I have my opinions. I'm just, I'm just curious, sure. curious on there's, yours. There's some things that you might be able to skimp on. I don't know that IT is one of them when you're a law firm and you're a law firm that's dealing with sensitive client information. You're storing sensitive, confidential, financial client information and your information, you have an ethical obligation. Your information needs to be secure. And let's face it, what we do all day, I mean, we're relying on our IT to be running all day long. If things go down, you're losing money. Quickly, <laughs> quickly, you start to lose money. So it's really important that it be up and running. It's also really tough to switch once you once you set something up, then to try to move it over into a different system can be a really big and expensive project. So it may make more sense to invest in it up front and get it right the first time. I'll also say that I think one of the best investments that I made is in having a good practice management software because it gives a really professional front electronically to your firm. It's something that the clients interface with. It it does all of my billing for me. So the clients get professionally generated bills that come to them electronically. It's easy for them to pay their bills. And I think that's super important. Um, it links to credit card payment programs. They can pay by credit card online. It makes it so that they can tell that you're a professional law firm right from month number one. And, and just not necessarily a question, but a comment from my perspective is so we opened our firm in 2019 and three years in the resource and the asset that we have built inside of our firm practice management system with the contacts that are in there, the form database that is built, you said the billing components of that, the other types of document management. Uh, it's not the, the one that we, it's not perfect and it's not the best, most expensive document management system in the world. It does a decent job, but like you said, what we've built and I just just think of where our practice management system was from day one to where it is now, even though it's the same platform, the data that is built in there, I mean, it's just remarkable. And, you know, I mean, for example, you know, your practice management, I mean, what kind of data do you find helpful or do you use it all in that now? And ours or? has even more functions that we're not even fully taking advantage of at this point, but certainly we're using it for all of our billing. We use it for our client contacts. We use it to keep track of things like where the referral sources came from and um, marketing lists, things like that. One option that we think is great is the, the fact that there's a link for clients to upload securely documents and for us 
us to send documents securely. So when we need that, we have it available to us. Again, ties back into the ethics obligations to make sure your client information is secure. So that really gives us the ability to render our services in the most professional way. If we can talk a little bit about some of the business metrics that you pay attention to, what for you? And I mean, of course, there's you know money in and money out. But if you could break down for us some of the metrics that you really want to keep an eye on or that you think are important that we may not necessarily think off the top of our heads. Sure, absolutely. I mean, and there's a number of them that I look to sort of even just to keep a pulse on the on the firm. How are we doing? Are we growing? How's the year going? The obvious one is the billable hours. I mean, that's what every firm looks like. That's what every attorney is looking at to see how they're doing, right? How are your hours billing? When you get beyond the billable hour, the next thing that I look at is how many of those billable hours are ending up on a bill, right? Are those hours getting written off or are those hours getting onto the bill? And then I move to the collection rate. How are we doing in terms of our collections? Our collections tend to be pretty good. And I again, I attribute that to somewhat our practice management software and the link to the credit card payment bill system that makes it really super easy to collect on bills. So those are three that I look at. Another one that I look at, which isn't sort of an official metric, but is definitely a way to keep track of where the firm stands is how much money is in my alt account? What do we have on retainer? Are the retainers going diminishing? Is that decreasing? Or is that growing or staying steady. And I look at that as a predictor of what kind of work we have sort of in the hopper and what the next coming months will look like based on how much we have on retainer. And what about the expense side of things? You know, I know attorneys, you know, Bill Blauer and and on the revenue side, is there anything, any considerations on the expense side or profit percentage or, or anything like that? that you look at, again, or that you've learned over the couple of years of your practice? Yeah. So, you know, I, I look at us as being in a growth side. So it doesn't bother me at times if the expenses seem to be growing a little bit more than they were previously in relation to, let's say, the gross revenues. Um, because the way that I see it, we're in a process of investment, for example, investing in associates, investing in training. Typically, I would say I would probably want to see my expenses at about a third of what the gross revenues are. Uh, but there are times when they exceed that. And again, if I think that that's linked to some form of some form of an investment in the future, then I'm OK with that as long as it's contained to a reasonable level. When you were starting out and uh, you dedicated some resources to having a brick and mortar office, right? Mm-hmm. As time has passed and the pandemic's hit, have you have you reallocated any resources to really take a good hard look at hybrid or cloud based uh, software that allow you you and your associates to work remotely? Well, you know, so we were in the cloud when we got set up. You know, it's a funny thing. Our transition to virtual was actually really easy. And it was because of the fact that we're small and it was because of the way that we're set up and we have this virtual access. It gave us a lot of flexibility. Um, We also have a really good team. And I think that also helped us to transition to the virtual because I had complete trust that everybody was working at home. I never for once once questioned whether this was going to work or whether people were working hard enough because I knew everybody was on board and was doing their part. But in terms of the resources, I think our resources were set up originally in the cloud. And that wasn't it wasn't on purpose because I wasn't thinking of us eventually going virtual, but it certainly worked out. We did certainly have to scramble a little bit to get a few extra laptops and some printers and things distributed to our employees for for purposes of working at home, but no significant outlays. And along those lines, sort of along the lines of the, you know, from in-person to hybrid and, and everywhere in between, when you were beginning your firm, how did you envision developing a culture within your firm 
And have you been able to carry that through even when you've been working remotely? You know, the culture is really important to me. And I think it's really important to my employees. It's important to have good morale in family law. You know, the the practice of family law will drag you down all by itself if you let it. And it'll take your employees down too. Um, So it's really important that you like the people that you're working with, that the people that are working for you are happy, that they feel supported that they feel like they're able to grow. We thought uh, in 2020, as an example, we had an employee, our paralegal was going on maternity leave in January of 2020. And so we thought that was going to be the biggest challenge that we were going to face. And I was extremely concerned about it, only to find out, of course, that that was the least of the disruptions of 2020 and 2021 and 2022. But here we are. So, you know, with that said, it was important that she be able to do that. I mean, you know, she was, she was, having a baby and she needed to be able to take her maternity leave. We were very supportive of that. We were working with her to facilitate that. I try to make sure even as a small firm that we have the things in place that help to build relationships, things like holiday functions, things like touching base with people, making sure that they're okay, making sure that they have the things they need, that they're, that they feel like they're getting the experiences that they want. Again, just making sure your employees are supported and happy. And, you know, some things that I think I just heard you say so the question, and and I don't know if, if you have a sense of being the owner of your own firm, the percentage of time that is devoted to non-billable activity, because like you said, setting up a Christmas party, right? At your other probably medium-sized firms, there's probably an administrator that took care of that. Maybe remembering birthdays, you know, for example, I, you know, when it was recently had some cold weather here in central Pennsylvania, and the ice folks didn't get here yet. There's snow and ice folks didn't get here yet. So we have a firm shovel with some ice that we had to take <laughs> care of that because court starts early and it's gotta get it's gotta get done. Do you have a sense of the amount of time that you spend on non-billable? And and I don't wanna say this and make it sound bad, right? I mean, you hear, oh, this non-billable activity automatically has a negative connotation. Your thoughts and just how much time do you think you spend on that? It's significant. I mean, I don't track it. I probably should. I don't track it. But I would say if someone is at a large firm billing 2,000 hours a year and they think they're going to move to a small firm and bill 2,000 hours a year and not put in a significant additional time, that's an unlikely scenario if they're opening their own firm. It is probably, if I had to guesstimate just off the cuff, I might say that about a third of my time goes to firm administration, accounting, you know, all those types of tasks. And I will also say I have a really long list of things that I'd love to do and want to do that I don't quite get through, you know, as I'm sure that you can imagine, things that are business development ideas, you know, things I'd like to put on the website that I haven't gotten a chance to do. I mean, there's lots of ideas that maybe have to fall to the bottom of the list because you need to get the bills out first and collect and take care of some of the practical realities and also meet all your legal practice deadlines at the same time. But the way that I look at it in terms of those tasks is that I enjoy it. I mean, to me, yes, it is an additional task. I do get rewarded for it by being the owner of the firm and receiving the financial rewards of being the owner of the firm. So that's the pay for those quote unquote non-billable hours. And frankly, it's different than the rest of what we do every day. To me, it's sort of a mental break to be able to do the accounting for the firm or take a look at the website and see if it needs to be updated. It's it's just a little different than the rest of what we do, even though it is interrelated. How many months in advance before you opened did you start working on it? You probably need to start thinking of it at least six months in advance, I would say. I don't know if that was your experience as well, but, you know, I mean, you need some lead time. I was moving into a pre-existing space and I had flexibility in terms of a move-in date. If you were starting a lease, 
that you might need to increase that amount of lead time. And you're speaking to to really getting it up and running. I mean, this is not withstanding all the time that you were putting in on the side, thinking about it, maybe doing some preliminary research and starting to lay the groundwork. You're really speaking of the functional you know, you've hit the accelerator on this project. I'm absolutely talking about when you start to open bank accounts and start to establish a business business entity and call your phone provider and say, I want phone lines installed, those types of tasks, not all of the lead time and analysis that goes into making the actual decision. This is, I've made the decision and I'm actually taking action. Now you're signing contracts, you are entering into leases, you are putting your name on the dotted line. Exactly. Yeah. And and I mean, Christina, there are folks along the way. Yeah, there's probably a little bit more upfront investment, but there are people that that can help you. Right. I mean, in this process, I mean, what I mean by this is there's probably a bank who would love to get your your relationship and and grow the relationship with you. There's probably an IT firm that said we would be happy to set up everything for you. You don't have to lift a finger. We'll take care of everything. You just have we're going to ask you for your direction. But all those things, you know, bookkeeping services, that all exists. If individuals want to leave, maybe a number of attorneys want to leave a firm and open up their own practice, and their main focus is going to be generating revenue, and it makes sense for other professionals to handle some of those items, I mean, it can be done. It's just managing all those people. It absolutely is. Yeah. And I mean, and there's a lot of resources that you can draw on from the Pennsylvania Bar Association as well. You know, they have a a list of different types of providers that offer discounts and that have been sort of vetted through the Pennsylvania Bar Association, such as from a practice insurance, as an example, and other types of insurance and other providers of various various legal services. Ellen Friedman, who is a consultant for the Bar Association, a law practice consultant, is available to have meetings with members, and she can provide a lot of experience and insight into options. Not to interrupt about Ellen, so she's free, right, as part of the the, the Bar Association Association member, where the services that she would provide to effectively anyone else, which she does and can, we have that as a resource effectively for free. And it's not just Again, in my experience, I recently learned this. It's not just when you're opening a firm. I mean, it's once you're open and running and you're thinking about growth, you're thinking about transitions, you're thinking about, you know, partner compensation. She's got a lot of resources and can talk through members, you know, people who want to become partners. She can help you through that. And I met with her when I was opening my firm. I had my well-prepared checklist of items that I wanted to talk about. And I can tell you that she's done this a zillion times. And her checklist was much longer and much more thorough than mine. And she had items on there that I hadn't even thought of yet because she has so much experience in in dealing with these issues. So it is definitely, I think if you're a bar association member, you'd be foolish not to take advantage of that opportunity to speak with her. The other thing that I found in the family law community is that there are so many other people who have done this, and I have yet to find one who doesn't want to talk to you about it and who isn't willing to sit down with you and have coffee or lunch and help you make some of the decisions and talk you through what their experiences were. And I I had more than one person say to me, I would open up my books to you. If you wanted to see my books, you could come and see my books. You can see what I bring in and you can see what my expenses are. It's phenomenal that somebody would offer that to you when you think about it. It's a very personal thing, but more than one attorney had said that to me. We have a great family law community of people that are really willing to help each other. And along those lines, when you were getting ready to get set up, were there any other outside resources that you looked to or relied upon in helping you make decisions, whether it was on 
IT issues or just even financial issues? You know what, just general outside research and then drawing on whatever professional relationships I already had in place, um, speaking to, you know, calling accountants, hey, like, how can I get started in this? Can you point me in the right direction? Really just personal networking was the way that I went in terms of getting referrals and getting information and instruction on how to do things. So there's no opening a law firm for dummies book that people can pull off the shelf? and There probably work. is. There probably is. But, you know, I guess I, I followed the DIY method to some degree. I didn't <laughs> I, have one major resource that laid it out for me. And and I think, Christina, I think you're absolutely correct, is that you you don't know how these items work until and are going to work for your particular practice until you just do it. And the other thing is that even pre-pandemic, it was a funny time in that I think things are changing so fast that if you do have a book, and I did at one point, I think I threw it out, but at one point I did have a book from like 10 years ago on how to open a law firm. If I had picked up that book off my shelf and read it in 2018 when I was doing this, it almost would have been a dinosaur because so much had changed in the practical realities of opening a firm. And of course, now going from 2019 to 2022, 2018 to 2022, things have changed a lot because of the pandemic. And I think they're still changing and still developing. So you really need to get the most up-to-date information. I mean, just phone services alone, like 10 years ago, you got a phone line, right? Like a regular phone line. And now when you call and ask for a phone, 10 different types of options, there's a mobility line and there's VOIP and there's all different kinds of options for you to think of about what type of a phone system you want where that didn't exist before. Great example. All right. So we're kind of getting here, winding up here, Christina, any interesting stories or tidbits that that you want to share with us about either opening a firm or challenging parts of a practice that, you know, you think it just really important or even fun for folks to hear about? I wish I had something fun. I mean, I think it's just a matter of of plowing through the process with with a degree of resilience. You know, I mean, there are definitely are bumps along the way. And I'll, I'll give you one example, which I wish it was fun, but it really wasn't. When I set up my bookkeeping system, I set it up. I had it linked to bank accounts. I had it linked to, I guess, to my practice management system. And it was just unwieldy. I mean, it was it was duplicating entries. It doesn't sound like a big thing, but trust me when I tell you it was costing me hours of time and heartache trying to figure out and correct this bookkeeping mess that had been created. I was tearing my hair out and I I said, you know, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I shouldn't have a firm, you know, that kind of thing. And I ended up speaking to someone who was in bookkeeping and they said to me, I think you have too many software systems talking to each other. You need to just get it down to like one, either have your bank account connected or have your practice management account connected, but maybe not both of them. So I sort of cleaned it out, started over, redid it, and it worked like a charm. Now it works perfectly. Those are the types of things that that you encounter. It little stuff that doesn't sound like a lot, but that really throws you for a loop. And you just have to muddle through it, keep going, get some help from the people that you know, and you'll make it through. Excellent. Well, Christina, thank you. Great guidance there. And I, I think, like you said, at the end, it can be done and it can be done successfully and really rewarding. So, Christina, thank you. Appreciate everyone listening to Law in the Family podcast from the Pennsylvania Bar Association. And we look forward to bringing more shows. Thank you. Law in the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash law in the family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be 
taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.